How late were you up last night with uh, with Blues Walk, like putting everything away and one or so, man? Uh, it, it's incredible. For those of you that have been to the Jazz Walk that happens usually in the spring or Blues Walk, uh, it's a big deal, man. There's lots of folks. Uh, I I saw a bunch of you that were volunteering, so I'm I know that Danny is really appreciative of that. It's really volunteers who make that whole thing happen, and uh, just a cool thing that we can do in our town. Uh, last week, uh, I meant to mention during our announcement that uh, we got to celebrate Luke McMain's dedication, and Luke was born uh, about a year ago to Sabrina and Greg McMain, who are part of our congregation, and it was it was awesome. I was so impressed, um, you know, with how, I mean, you never know with, with kids, like, are they going to be able to, are they going to be squirmy, uh, are, are they going to be quiet? Luke just kind of sat there and took it all in. It was, it was pretty incredible, and that was a huge way to bless their family. I, I think they probably had 15 or 20 of their family here uh, for that day, and so it was pretty amazing just to see how we were able to fold them in, and they felt extremely blessed. So way to go, church. That was a, definitely a feel-good feel moment. This fall, our sermon series is called The Beginner's Guide to the Kingdom of Heaven, and Matthew has provided, really, an excellent way to dismiss or to invite our children and confirmation students back to their classes. I didn't forget, Susan. Honest, I didn't forget. I forgot. Um, and so they'll make their way on, on back to their classes right now. Uh, you're welcome to join them. So Matthew, as I was saying, has provided the perfect introduction in his gospel. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's located in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so uh, we're just kind of making our way through that this fall, or part of our way through that this fall. And it's the most famous collections of Jesus' teaching that we can find everywhere. This is inspired movements and peoples and books. I mean, there's thousands of books that have been written about the Sermon on the Mount or touch upon the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount would have been um, really until the last, I don't know, I guess maybe it's 50 years, but midway through the 20th century. You know, when you talk about ethics, especially like um, uh, ethics like at a collegiate level, everyone was interacting with Jesus' saying here. And that's whether you were at Harvard University or whether you were at Washington State. I mean, it, it's had that kind of run and that kind of impact on Western culture. And not just Western United States, but Western in the sense of like uh, who we are, United States, Europe, that kind of idea. And um, it was extremely profound and still is. And even so, I would have said, um, prior to becoming a pastor, and prior to being forced to really reckon with it in my studies, I would have had a really difficult time explaining to someone what Jesus meant by the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God would be a, a, another phrase for it, or the kingdom is how most people shorten that. I would have had a really difficult time explaining what that even meant, even though I know he talked about it and taught about it all the time. I would have assumed that he just meant heaven, like that far-off place that I hope to live in someday. Um, but I would have been surprised also to learn that Jesus understood the kingdom of heaven as something that was breaking in as he spoke. 
mean, it was this idea that it was eminent, that it was present, really. And uh, as we look back upon Jesus and his time here on earth, we realize like that was kind of like the first installment of the kingdom. And that when Jesus comes back again at the second advent, like there's going to be a completion of all that Jesus started. And that has to do with the, the coming fullness of the kingdom of God. And um, I catch glimpses of the kingdom, especially when I read the gospels. I see the glimpses of the kingdom in Jesus' teaching. Uh, I see glimpses of God's kingdom sometimes in my own life, but most often in the lives of other Christians I know. I go, oh, that definitely wasn't something of earth. That was something of God in that person. I don't know if you ever kind of catch that. When you, it's, it's the superhuman moments, maybe not like a, a Marvel superhero, but just in the way that people love and the way they forgive and the way that they're present and care about relationships. And I mean, all of these things that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And there's no mistaking that the person he describes as living in that kingdom, it sounds kind of weird, Right? Weird because it's out of the norm, not, you know, weird because it's unusual in that way, not because we think something's wrong with that person. And we love as people to conform in our society. And you heard me say that right. We kind of see ourselves as individuals, but really, really we're not, okay? We are pack animals to the core. And we care about falling in line. And it couldn't be truer in deciding how we want to live or who we want to be as people. Uh, we'd kind of like to you know, stick our finger in the air and see which way the breeze is going and the most people are heading, and that's kind of how we make our decisions. I mean, I'm, I know that I'm simplifying this, but I think that that's actually pretty accurate. Um, I wish that I myself was immune. So Corey and I painted our house this summer. It was one of the first things that we wanted to do when we moved in eight years ago. It just took a while, right? We really don't like the color of this house. Let's change it. But we couldn't decide what color. And um, so this kind of just evolved. I mean, if I had a dollar for every minute that we talked about what color to paint our house, I could probably retire. I mean, this was like, as we would drive around, you know, just randomly, this would almost always come up in the course of our, hey, do you see the color of that house? Do you like that one? You know, like, what about that one over there? And then we, you know, talk about other stuff. We made a hobby out of going to paint stores. Okay, I, I feel like I know from here to Seattle, every Benjamin Moore, Sherwin-Williams, uh, Home Depot employee by name. Okay, like, hey, Bob, how's it going? Uh, Jenny, nice to see you. Going to pull some more paint swatches here. We got hundreds of those things at home. Um, if you ever had gone to the back of our house, you would have seen like different patches. You know, God help our neighbors, right? They had to look at all these color swatches that we were trying to just couldn't ever seem to find the right color. And, and yet, at the time we had to, we finally had to decide. And so we settled on, on this one. Bruce, I think we got the, the photo in there. See, it's kind of this blue, uh, really dark blue with white accents. And um, it didn't occur to me until after I had purchased the paint. So, you know, like $1,000 of paint sitting in my garage. 
it didn't occur to me that this color was going to be very similar to the color that our neighbors painted their house like last summer. Is that subconscious? Which is like, no way. We didn't even, I didn't even like cross, it didn't even cross our minds. We finally settled on this. And I, of course I asked Corey like, you know, did you realize this is going to be real similar to our neighbor's house? She's like, oh yeah, but this is something totally different, totally different theme. I mean, I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I wonder that when it comes to how we choose to live our own lives, that we kind of just steer in the direction it appears that everyone else is headed. Well, I don't really hate that color. Well, I don't really dislike that idea strongly, and everyone else seems to be going this way, so I guess we kind of head this way. It brings chills to me when I, when I hear words of Jesus, like in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, <clears throat> Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. I don't think he was talking about people that painted their house blue, but who knows. But small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This is Jesus' way of saying that we should be wary of what we would call now groupthink. We should kind of be aware of, uh, I guess my mom's word would be like, if everybody was jumping off a cliff, would you do it? Well, of course not, Mom. But we kind of have this way of human beings as, as like, well, I don't, there's really a number of directions that we could go. So well, everybody else seems to kind of be heading that way, so we will too. And maybe that's why the words of Jesus here sound so out of tune to us. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount uh, with this carefully crafted section we call the Beatitudes. He would have done this very purposefully so that people could have memorized it, um, even mnemonically. He would have been speaking in Aramaic, most likely. Um, and so we're, we're kind of working our way through this. Last week, we elaborated on what it means to be poor in spirit. Today, we're going to look at what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who mourn. And from the get-go, Jesus makes it clear. The kind of person that we assume is blessed, that, that we assume has God smiling upon them, is fortunate or even happy, contrasts sharply with the kind of person he calls blessed. It's kind of weird. And so I, I want to read it again for you. As I do so, imagine you're hearing this for the first time. Jesus would have delivered this on a mountainside, um, most scholars believe, at least in the hill country around the Sea of Galilee, there's kind of some natural amphitheaters, the way that the hillside sits, that he would have been able to, you know, not need a microphone and still talk to lots and lots of people. So imagine that you're just sitting here on this hillside hearing this for the first time. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He continues on. He says in verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So a couple of weeks ago, I started my morning, um, as I often do, listening to a little podcast that I um, have, have found really, really helpful in my, in my devotional life. It's called Pray As You Go. And uh, they read Luke's version of this statement by Jesus. And it's different. I mean, Luke has some, I mean, different things in it. Most notably, uh, in addition to these blesseds, he has some woes, you know, blessed are you and woe to you. And he says, woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. And then, pray as you go, uh, said this. They said, for many people, these words of Jesus, the Beatitudes, represent the heart of Christianity. Jesus makes a number of promises to those who are poor, hungry, sad, and despised. These promises are the kingdom of God, satisfaction, joy, and a great reward in heaven. What do you understand by these promises? What do I imagine them to offer? Can these things captivate me and attract me by these things, the kingdom of God, satisfaction, joy, a great reward in heaven? Can these things captivate me and attract me? And then Praise Your Go said this, Now by contrast, imagine for yourself the other sort of life that Jesus describes. Imagine for yourself a life that would be loaded with wealth, yeah. with material excess, yes, with celebrity. Would this satisfy and reassure you about the value of your own life? Yeah, I think it would, right? If I was wealthy, if I had lots of material excess, if I was a celebrity, definitely that would fill my tank. That would bring me satisfaction, joy. I would feel great reward. Uh, I'd feel like God loves me. I kind of doubt it. I mean, if I'm miserable now, what difference does it make if I have a lot of money or a little? What difference does it make if I'm famous or I'm not? Jesus' words here, I mean, it kind of, to me, reveals some of the brilliance in it. You know, if you were to think about these opposite paths, which one are you feeling invited to head down? According to Jesus, the disconnect that I'm kind of describing there is why I need help. And throughout the centuries, many people have wondered, like you and me, what exactly are you getting at here, Jesus? You know, the people who we see as, as blessed, they live in fancy houses. They get to experience private aviation. They have their own jets. I looked it up this week just to find out how much it costs to operate a Gulfstream G6. It's a lot of money. There's a lot of people flying around in those things. 
Boy, that would be nice, huh? The people who are blessed raise kids who earn full-ride scholarships to college. They get invited to VIP events. They always seem to have lemons made into lemonade. And so while these Beatitudes first seem a bit out of tune to us, it's not because they're false. It's because they describe a person who we may not know, or at least a person with whom we're not completely familiar. And so that's kind of led to two different tracks or things thoughts, I guess, schools of thoughts and how to interpret Jesus' saying here. I mean, are they just idealistic, virtuous? We'll call that the school of wisdom. Like, are these wisdom sayings that Jesus is saying, you know, your life will go better, like you will be blessed if you can kind of bring these virtues into your life? Um, or, or, or what? Another mode of thought is that these are prophetic, um, that Jesus is a prophet, even by the way he talks the last little bit there when he's saying, hey, you know, this is how they treated the false prophets. I mean, Jesus, these are things that actually this is about God's deliverance for people. That this is about God's salvation. And the Beatitudes are not about these high ideals. Um, Dallas Willard uh, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he said, if, if that was the case, then we would have salvation by attitude. Like, oh, you just, need to, you just need to be poor in spirit, or you need to have that kind of attitude. Then you're on the right track, you're experiencing the kingdom of heaven. But when Jesus explained or proclaimed this message, Israel had been through a long, long time where God seemed absent. Where are you, God? Where are you, God? That would have been the, the, the people of Israel, what they would have thought. Um, they, God seemed distant to them. And so Jesus shows up with the power of the Holy Spirit. He heals injured and sick people. He frees folks of demonic oppression. I mean, he teaches with brilliance and authority. He looks and feels like a leader who commands attention. But according to Jesus, his mission was in line with the prophet Isaiah. And in Luke 4, like right as he's beginning his ministry, he quotes Isaiah 61. He does this as he's talking in his hometown of Nazareth. He says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness... The, for the uh, release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that last line is really key. You see, Isaiah wrote towards the end of the Babylonian exile to a group of people who really missed their home in Jerusalem. And he was expressing the hope for God's promised redemption. He was expressing like, Guess what, folks? God is not absent. He's going to show up in a big and powerful and amazing way, and he will deliver us. So Jesus teaching the Beatitudes is kind of in the same vein. He's lifting people up towards God's deliverance. He's pointing. He's like, this is almost here. You can taste it. God is not absent from your life. He didn't just create the world and step away and go, oh, 
We'll see what happens. No, he's actively engaged and involved. And he will deliver you. He will save you. He will rescue you. And so when Jesus is teaching here on this hillside that we just imagined ourselves sitting, he's not preaching to a bunch of stuffy philosophers. He's speaking to disciples. He's largely speaking to blue-collar people who, you know, wake up every day and work hard and go to bed and start all over again. He's preaching to a group of people who may have been peasants who didn't have a lot but they were motivated to climb up the mountain after him. They were people who had already tasted grief, folks who needed encouragement and mercy, people who had tried a hand at peacemaking. So this is not about the perfection of our human lives, but about the coming of God's grace. Jesus is saying you're blessed, you're fortunate, you're in sync with God's activity on earth. And so last week when we focused on the poor in spirit, um, Paul Simon, the musician, uh, I saw a lyric of his. That you're just like, you know, we sit down and we go, Jesus, what do you mean? What do you mean? This is so hard to understand. And Paul Simon has this lyric. He's like, blessed are the sat upon, spat upon, ratted on. He gets it. Nailed it. Uh, Dallas Willard, as I mentioned before, he, he translated it this way. He's like, blessed are the spiritually deprived, for they too find the kingdom of the heavens. Spiritually deprived. That's how I feel sometimes. They too find the kingdom of the heavens. Being poor in spirit is like eating humble pie and liking it. Or maybe being poor in spirit is like having to eat vegetables. We may not really like it, but we know this is good for us. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. There's a refreshing lack of defensiveness in people who are poor in spirit, a lack of resentfulness, a lack of judgmentalness. And then Jesus drops this bombshell. He says, blessed, happy, literally, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And the word for mourning is literally to experience not just grief. The word for mourning is passionate grief. And passion in the good old Roman Latin understanding of it is actually suffering. It's not this romantic love that we think of it. It's like being lovesick. There is a, a passionate grief. And so Jesus says, blessed are those people, for they will be comforted. And for those of us sitting here, you know, 2,000 years later, this sounds really strange, especially in a place like the United States. We're terrified of pain, amen? We're almost as terrified of pain as we are of poverty, actually. I mean, our goal is to lead a painless existence. I mean, really, when it comes down to it. No suffering, no trials, no challenges. Let's just cruise right on through life without experiencing anything too hard. That's our goal. And avoiding pain at any cost, physical, emotional, spiritual, 
You know, we'll do that even though we're well aware that denial never helped anyone. So a couple of weeks ago, the Emmy Awards were on. And uh, you'd be wrong to think that I really pay attention to, to TV that much. Uh, but I did hear a report about it on the radio. And so they were kind of going through a bunch of the shows, uh, you know, the episodic shows. The Oscars are for movies, Emmys are for everybody else. Uh, and so they were naming these shows, and like often happens with award shows, like I haven't heard of half of them that they're naming. But there was a couple that I'm like, oh, yeah, I've seen that on the Netflix feed or Apple or wherever. Like, oh, okay. So one of them they named was a show called Severance. And I just, Corey and I were like, what should we watch? Well, I heard that this won a bunch of awards. Let's check it out. So we started watching Reverence. And without spoilers, I would describe it as dystopian and kind of sinister. But maybe melancholy is a better way to describe it. And then this kind of is a little bit of a spoiler, but you'll find this out in the first, like, five minutes of the show, okay? It's why it's called Severance. It's describing a surgical procedure that people can have so that when they're at work, they won't remember their life at home and vice versa. When they're at home, they won't remember their life at work. I know that some of you would sign up for that right now. Amen, right? And that's the like sinister piece. Like, what are they doing at work that they don't want people to remember when they're at home? But ironically, that's not why the main character decided to do it. The main character decided to have this procedure to escape the grief he constantly felt after his wife died. Well, at least there's a few hours in my day that I'll get some freedom from this pain. I'll forget. And when I saw that, I mean, I almost fell on the floor. I was like, that is brilliant. Uh, as a person who's gone through a season of very deep grief, I would have signed up for that in a heartbeat. I just want to forget it I want to ignore it, I want to stuff it, I want to numb it, I want to escape it, and it won't go away. And so, uh, in a weird way, that entire show, like as I've, I've only, I haven't even watched the whole thing, I'm only halfway through, I look at it and I go, that's exactly how I felt. It's this depression-laced fog that you feel like you're in every day. And unfortunately, that's how we treat our emotions. When it comes to grief and loss, we think that something's wrong with us. You know, as a society, we've lost the art of mourning. How do you do something that you've never done before? You kind of look around and see how everybody else is doing this. Well, everybody just wants us to get past it. They just want to move on. They just want to get it over and done with, or they just don't even want to go there at all. And so we don't know how to express emotions, the, the, the fear over our lack of control or the pain that we might have. And so, like I said, we stuff them, we minimize them, we numb them, we escape them. But the experience of loss and the emotion of grief that's caused by that is something that is normal and natural 
parts of being human. And so when Jesus speaks to those of us who mourn, he's hitting on something that every single person in the history of humanity has experienced at some point. It's something that we all hold in common. And he says that you can tell you're in the kingdom of heaven when you mourn, when you experience passionate grief. It means that you loved that person. It means that you miss that person and wish they were still a part of your life because they meant so much to you. That actually honors them as people. That honors their memory. It's beautiful. It's something that we should celebrate. It's blessed. But most importantly, Jesus says, in his kingdom, those people will be comforted. They'll be comforted because in Jesus' kingdom, death doesn't get to say the last word. Death is not the end of the story. There's actually hope. There's resurrection in Jesus' kingdom. There's an acknowledgement that the world we live in is broken, that the fact that death exists at all, there's something wrong with that whole idea. That's not the world God created. It's the world that we brought upon ourselves when we said, guess what, God, I want to do this my own way. But even then, God didn't take his toys and go somewhere else. God said, okay. And he made a plan. That plan is in Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, who came to walk among us, to live and teach us a new way to exist and to die for our sins, to offer us a chance of healing and hope for resurrection. This is part of the good news that Jesus speaks of. It's prophetic. Even though things look bad now, God, God's deliverance is coming it's coming. And Jesus will return again someday to set the world straight, to make it right, and just, just wait. And so even though I frame this whole idea of mourning in a very personal way, there's many things in our world that could cause us to mourn or experience passionate grief. I mean, it's the loss of someone you love, but man, look at our news cycle. It's impossible not to be desensitized by... Um, you know, the war in Ukraine or the devastation that hurricanes cause or whenever we see um, child abuse, spousal abuse, uh, random acts of violence. I mean, we see these things in our world and we go, God, this is not the way it should be. And we mourn for those things. But we mourn for those things not because it's hopelessly lost. We mourn because we know of what it can be. We pray for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so once we understand, once we look at our current world, once our hearts are broken, once we mourn, it's because we know what it could be. And the amazing thing is that when Jesus showed up and he says, hey, I've come to you know, set the captives free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you know how that ends in Isaiah 61? It ends like this. Spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn. Provide for those who grieve in Zion, 
to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Maybe we're not cursed, as some people would believe. Maybe we're blessed. Jesus himself, he mourned. He was moved with compassion multiple times when he saw people who were sick or hurt. He wept at the the graveside of his friend Lazarus. God sees us. He knows us. He loves us. And when he says, blessed are those who, who mourn, for they will be comforted, he means that. We can turn to Jesus and be comforted. It may not change the immediately the immediate circumstances in our life at this moment but jesus presence in your life can transcend all of that and even in the midst of pain and hurt you can feel peace you can feel comfort you can actually oddly still feel joyful these are what god's doing and transforming inside of us and it's the hope that we have for his deliverance. So happy, as weird as it sounds to say, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted in God's kingdom. Amen? Please join me in prayer. Lord, that's our hope. It's, it's a hope for your deliverance. It would be impossible to live in this world and to look around and see everything that seems to be kind of broken and the people who are kind of messed up, the mistakes that we make, the things that we do that we regret, sometimes brings us to mourning. But it's also for the, the people who've really meant something in our life. When we lose them, we grieve, we mourn. And the good news that we find in your son Jesus is comfort, is grace, is deliverance, is hope. And God, that's not a way of glossing over the pain in our life. It's a way that you transform that into something new and beautiful. And that's what we celebrate. That's what we're happy about. That's what makes us blessed. And so we pray as, uh, for in a room this size, I, there's no doubt people who are, are mourning right now God, won't you descend upon them very tangibly? Might they sense your presence and your peace and your comfort in their life? And for the rest of us, Lord, who we know that that will touch our lives at some point, help us to remember this promise, this hope that you give, that for those who mourn, you will comfort. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Jesus, you are Lord of all. May you go through this week wrapped in God's presence, comforted in whatever grief you might be experiencing, or that you might be able to share that comfort, as the New Testament says. With those of us who have been comforted, we can share that comfort for those that are experiencing great loss and turmoil in their own life. So may you, God's people, go in his presence and peace and blessing and know that he is Lord of all. Amen. We'll see you next week.